Welcome to the Exploring Unschooling podcast. I'm Pam Larickia, longtime unschooling mom and author. Join me and my wonderful guests for interviews, information, and inspiration about unschooling and living joyfully with your family. You can find the episode show notes, your free introductory ebook, What is Unschooling?, and lots more information at livingjoyfully.ca. And here's the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Pam Larickia, and this is episode number 65 of the podcast. It's the 29th of March, 2017, as I record this intro. And it's Q&A time. And Omen couldn't be with us this month, but Anna Brown and I valiantly soldier on to answer your questions. And we had great questions to dive into. They cover staying mindful of our environment, being uncomfortable when a child says no to activities, challenges with anxiety and friendships, monitoring what our kids are watching, and our fears when a child watches lots of TV. It was interesting to see a bit of a theme running through a number of the questions this month. The way through our fears is connecting more deeply with our children. And in the episode, we share lots of ideas on ways to do that. Uh, I stopped by my free-to-learn book page on Amazon this week and found a new review I thought I'd share. Uh, This book is so wonderful. It helped me so much with my unschooling path with my autistic son. It helped to totally calm my nerves and help me know this was the right path to take. Even with his nonstop computer gaming, it really helped me to see just how much he is learning from that. It really, it's really kind of amazing. You really need to read this book. Well, thanks so much for that review, but I so clearly remember the joy and excitement of so many aha moments when I was first learning about unschooling, and it's just really fun to see them happening for others. And if you'd like to check out Free to Learn, Five Ideas for a Joyful Unschooling Life, I'll put a link in the show notes to the book page. Or you can just search my name on most of the booksellers and my books will come up. And thanks so much to everyone who has chosen to support the podcast on Patreon. I deeply appreciate all of my patrons. You guys inspire me, and I love that you're helping me share unschooling information with anyone who wants to explore this wonderful lifestyle with their family. And if you'd like to support the show, even for as little as a dollar a month, check out the Exploring Unschooling page at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash exploring unschooling. Now this week, I want to share a quote from the episode that exemplifies a theme. Anna said, I like to peel back the layers. I don't focus on addressing the behavior because it's just a clue. Look at the clues for the underlying need. It's typically things like needing food, too much stimulation, not feeling heard, needing space, needing connection, etc., There could be things going on in the family, so watch for those. Watch for patterns to see if it's certain times, places, individuals, activities, etc. Understanding the environmental triggers can help you and your son work to recognize the stress before it becomes an outburst. So see how many ways this can work? Pull it up and see how the approach works in so many different situations. Whether the situation involves our child's stress and anxiety or our own. Looking at this month's questions, they're all rooted in our fears. Whether it's fear of a child engaging in an activity longer than expected, or of a child refusing outside activities, or of our child's behavior, or of a child coming across an upsetting visual, or of a child spending lots of hours watching TV. Moving through these fears lies in taking these behavioral clues ours and our children's, and peeling back the layers to discover the needs, again, ours and theirs, that are at the roots of our choices, of our actions and reactions. And note that Anna said she doesn't focus on addressing the behavior. She doesn't mean ignoring it. Help as best you can in the moment, but don't stop there. Don't let that be your focus. Now's the time to engage and connect more deeply with our children to discover those underlying needs, theirs and ours. There's so much learning and insight waiting for us there. I think it's also important to note that fears aren't something to beat ourselves up over. They're great clues that there's a disconnect wanting to be examined more carefully. And our lives aren't static. I expect fears will bubble to the surface throughout our lifetime. I know they do in mine. 
And now, let's dig into your questions. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Q&A episode. I'm Pamela Riccia from livingjoyfully.ca, and I'm happy to be joined by Anna Brown. Hi, Anna. Hey. Hey. Uh, just to let you guys know, we rescheduled the call twice because Anne really wanted to be here, but in the end, we couldn't make it work. So no worries. Anne and I are going to do our best to go through the questions, and we will hear from Anne again next month, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, so absolutely. would you like to get us started, Anna? I sure will. Okay, so question one is from Amanda, who is in Grand Rapids. Um, okay, we've edited this question a little bit for length because it was long, and so we're going to shorten it down just a bit. I'm a single mom to two people, one a 4.75-year-old and one a 17-year-old. They are both boys, the older one in school, the younger not. I've read the book Mindless Eating by Brian Wansick, and the idea uh, in a lot of the studies done by Wansick and his group is that choice about what to eat and how much to eat is subtly denied to us based on things like location of the food, the size of the portions. Another theme is that companies that profit know how to encourage us to eat more of what they want us to so that they will make more money. I'd like to encourage opportunities for the kids to choose their activity without limiting activities by time or number, i.e. we've stopped those controls on computer game time a couple years ago. It seems that the results of the mindless eating studies could be applied to other activities in which we are offered an endless feed. So to apply this to another activity, turning off the quote autoplay function on YouTube is a way to give ourselves the moment to make a choice about the next thing we'd like to do. I'm not judging the value of the activities we are choosing or spending our time on. I love food and YouTube, but I don't want myself or my kids to be on a constant feed motivated by profit without regard for our well-being or our actual curiosity. Another example would be a computer game. Choice maximized setup would be that each time you finished a chunk, it would say, would you like to continue to the next level or save and quit? Auto feed setup just keeps going until you take the initiative to quit out of it. There's no problem with playing as many levels as you want, but mindless eating studies would seem to show that you would choose to stop sooner if you weren't on auto feed. I'm not confusing feed with flow. When I'm in the flow, it's a special state, but I'm in charge of it. A feed is when I look up and think, I can't believe I just spent so much time on that. What a time waster. It's times like that that I wish Facebook had some red Pringles, a Wansick study reference. Wansick has found that this is not a matter of an individual self-control or lack of, but how we set up our surroundings or how they are set up for us. What are some of the other things that you see on auto feed that we could arrange to give the kids and ourselves more choice in how we spend our time? Okay. <laughs> um, I, I if just, first of all, I found the intellectual aspects of the question really interesting, you know, I like it and kind of applying it to different areas of my own life, but right off the bat, I need to say that I have no desire to quote, arrange choices for other people, friends, my spouse, my children. I think it could be an interesting discussion to have with someone. And my guess is there's about a 50-50 chance that it will be interesting to them. But if it was, then it could be something that they choose to explore or we choose to explore together. I love exploring the way the mind works and how our environment influences us. And just to keep that in mind that I can just keeping in mind, though, that I can only control my behavior and not the behavior of others. I also tend to think all at take all absolutes with a grain of salt. You know, researchers have their own biases. And so I can enjoy their perspective and see how it plays out for me, but also realize that it's, there's not necessarily a right or wrong because these, type, these types of things change all the time as different researchers bring in different studies and look at it in different ways and have different filters. And thinking about one of the examples that you mentioned, I watch YouTube also. And typically it's because I've looked something up and I have no problem turning it off when the autoplay starts. If I have time or maybe I'm sitting in the next thing or something on the sidebar catches my eye, then I might take a look. And there have been some super interesting rabbit holes for me started that way. So I don't really see any time spent doing anything as wasted. 
you know, something drew me to the activity and I got something out of it, even if it might appear mindless to an outside observer, you know, that's an external judgment of my internal process. And that isn't something that I want to do to someone else. I trust that they're getting what they need and that our connection is always there if there's questions or they're wanting to change or do. So I guess I don't really want to turn my power over by saying that I don't have the power and the corporations are controlling us, that that just doesn't really resonate with me and isn't what I've seen in my family. So those are just a few thoughts about that, but it is a super interesting discussion, but I will turn it over to Pam and see what she thought. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I found it a really fascinating question too, because and I really enjoyed uh, the opportunity to consider the whole idea. So thanks very much for the question, Amanda. And first, I just wanted uh, to give a quick explanation of red Pringles for the listeners. So Wansik uh, found that inserting red-colored Pringles at serving size intervals in a can of Pringles in his, this particular study helped curb overeating in the college students that he was looking at. Yeah. Um, so that's that's what a red Pringle is, what she's referencing. But so to talk about this whole idea, I like to dig into the idea of flow versus feed. Um, in his book, Finding Flow, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi described being in the flow as complete engagement in the activity. So here's a quote. There is no space in consciousness for distracting thoughts, irrelevant feelings. Self-consciousness disappears, yet one feels stronger than usual. The sense of time is distorted. Hours seem to pass by in minutes. So the disappearance of self-consciousness is a key aspect of being in the flow. And when we drop that layer of internal analysis, that real-time judgment of ourselves and how we're performing, we really do hit a deeper level of engagement. We feel freer to experiment, to think outside the box, to ask, quote, dumb questions, because those are the questions that are on the tip of our tongue, whose answers will bring us the greatest clarity in the moment. So flow really is where we find so much really, really great learning. Now, a feed seems to be defined as an activity where after the person comes out of the flow, they look back and judge their time spent negatively as a waste, you know, as you talked about time waster on Facebook or something. Mm -hmm. Well, either way, we make the choice to engage in the activity up front, as Anna was saying, and we can take responsibility for ourselves. And by that, I don't mean judge ourselves, try to make ourselves feel bad for, say, staying on Facebook longer than we intended, but rather recognizing over time that this is happening and deciding for ourselves what we're okay with, and then setting up our environment to help us meet our own goals. So part of that exploration and conversation can include ways that, you know, companies design products or experiences to prolong our engagement. I know Joseph and I have all sorts of interesting conversations about um, video games and, and you know, that whole, the whole push and pull um, between enjoying it and, you know, the, the companies, they want you to play as long as possible. Um, but they also want the experience to be enjoyable or you're going to get frustrated if you feel manipulated um, and you're, they're going to lose you as well. So, you know, it's, it's fascinating stuff and it's great learning about ourselves, but presupposing that this will happen to our children and purposefully interrupting their flow by, for example, you know, turning off the autoplay on YouTube takes away from their learning. It takes away from their opportunity to develop the self-awareness to recognize that there's a disconnect between their intentions when they start an activity and how it turns out in the end. You know, to ask that question, did the outcome match their expectations? Our action, if we if we start putting um, these interruptions in, says, I don't trust you to figure this out. We need to prevent this from happening in the first place. Even if we tell them what we're doing, you know, we talk with them, we say, hey, let's turn off autoplay so you don't get pulled in and watch more than you want. The underlying message to our actions is that we believe the tech or the food or whatever it is, is more powerful than we are, that it controls us. And it's making us do things that we wouldn't choose to do if we were paying attention. So we're creating a climate of fear around the whole idea of flow. Oh my gosh, I don't want to get caught in the flow of this. But that's where so much of the great learning is. So say you got a child who says, wow, I didn't mean to spend all day playing that video game. 
this is not a failure on their part or on our part or something that needs to be fixed. It's life. It's an observation. It's learning about ourselves. It's an invitation to conversation about the experience and the circumstances and what happened. It's an opportunity to talk about whether it happens to them often, whether it's something that they're concerned about and might want to try change. It's building their self-awareness. It's personal to them. And it's about helping them, you know, developing their time management skills. So maybe the child will want to explore tools that remind them to check in with themselves once in a while by turning off that autoplay or or even setting a timer, you know, every half hour to just check in and see if they do want to continue with the activity, but maybe not. And it's okay. Part of that exploration will also include follow-up conversations about whether those reminders to check in with themselves are actually helping or whether they're finding that they're having an unfavorable impact by taking them out of the flow because it can be hard to get back into an activity after you've been interrupted, right? You're, you, you aren't, um, sunk into it so that your self-consciousness analysis disappears. You're pulling them back out so that they're analyzing it again. And it can be challenging to get back into it. Again, it's so personal. Personal. It's learning about themselves and, and how it works for them. So I don't think the idea itself as a tool is a bad thing. I think preemptively imposing these kind of interruptions on our children, effectively like red pringling them, right? right. Before they have found it to be an issue, has the potential to interfere with more learning than it encourages, right? So the difference between choosing something and having it imposed on you is vast. It's 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 everything, right? <laughs> vast. <laughs> yes, vast. <laughs> I like that word. Vast. So yeah, it's a really cool idea, but it's something to pull out when you find you're having an issue. Well, well, eat individually, right? When your child, if your child finds they're having an issue with it, um, it's something you can bring into the conversation and see if it's something they might want to try. Yeah, okay. I, I, think, I think so. Yeah. That one, I, I feel like, oh, I have more to say, but no, <laughs> we can move on. I think we it. <laughs> and so you'll take question two. I will do question two. This question's from Alicia in the California Bay Area. Uh, she writes, I've been listening to your podcast for a while, and I'm grateful for all the information and support offered. I homeschool three children ages 15, 14, and 9. I consider myself a relaxed homeschooler with the tendency to lean strongly to unschooling. My youngest is a force that steers me towards unschooling. When I hear Anne in her talks uh, in the Q&A episodes, I can really resonate with how she describes her son, Jacob. My youngest from the get-go would not allow any teacherly stuff to happen. She knows what she wants and what she doesn't want. It's because of her that I have found solace in your podcast. Her and I have shed many tears with my attempts to try and teach her. The moment I back off and let her lead the way, all seems to flow nicely in our household. She's highly sensitive and very active, yet she refuses to do any outside classes activities. We have tried to offer her fun classes either through our local community center, such as cooking, because she loves to cook, but refuses to be taught or helped, gymnastics, martial arts, etc., I figure since she seems social and active and tends to get bored easily, that outside activities would help fulfill her. She refuses any of it and prefers to stay home. She loves to watch movies. Occasionally, she dives in and out of video games, and she just loves to watch sitcoms and comedies with me. Her interests change daily, but can include cooking, Legos, drawing, and playing with her toys. My question is, should I continue to try to persuade her to take a class or two with the hopes of her finding something that she just might connect to? Or do I let her be? She does attend an indoor swimming lap pool whenever she feels like it. Other than that, she wants nothing else. I tried to sign her up for an awesome cooking session in a restaurant in San Francisco with a known chef, but she simply said no and that she doesn't like classes. I'm afraid that she just might miss out on things that she would otherwise not find without me seeking them out for her. I desperately want to fully unschool, and I see a huge difference when I lean into unschooling at home. The connection with all three of my children is so much stronger when I try to unschool. I don't want to hinder any opportunities for her by not possibly encouraging her to try other outside activities. I hope I have made some sense. 
Uh, definitely, Alicia, your question makes sense. I can certainly tell um, where you're coming from. And I love how you've already realized that this is your fear talking, that you're afraid she might miss out on things she wouldn't find if you didn't seek them out for her. You know, and you mentioned that you're thinking since she seems social and active and tends to get bored easily, that outside activities would help fulfill her. But by saying no thanks to your offers, right, she's telling you that, at least for now, she doesn't agree with you. And you can trust her. And that's the hard part, right? And even if she changes her mind later and wants to go out more, she knows that that stuff exists because you mentioned it. And, and she can ask you. Changing her mind later, if she does, doesn't mean that she was wrong to stay home now. This is how she's going to discover whether the reality meshes with her expectations, how she sees herself right now. You know, she's good. So I think it would be helpful for you <clears throat> to dig into why you're feeling stuck there, right? She's just saying no, and she's off doing her things. So when you're looking at stuff from her perspective, she's she sounds happy. Um, so... It seems to be more of an issue that you're dealing with. So maybe you can ask yourself why you seem to be valuing those outside activities over inside activities so much. Because I think that is something that many of us find ourselves working through at some point while we're de-schooling, right? So you can ask yourself questions. Is it about the learning? Do you think learning is better face-to-face -face with an expert? Um, or is it the participation in a group environment? Society does really seem to value extroversion over introversion in general. Or are you feeling responsible for fixing her feelings of boredom? Each of these routes has a fascinating but very different path to follow as you work on creating a supportive unschooling environment for her. So maybe your path will encompass learning more about how learning unfolds with unschooling. Or maybe it'll be learning about uh, introverted personalities and way to support them and help them shine. Or it could be mulling over the idea of feeling bored and how you might respond next time she mentions it. I have a whole blog post just about the idea of boredom, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So as you're exploring these kinds of questions for yourself, what if for the next while you sought out things to share with her that you're quite sure she'll be thrilled to do right now? Because even so often the things you're bringing to her, she's saying, no thanks, no thanks. So if she loves to stay in, find, you know, YouTube videos about stuff she enjoys or DVDs or books from the library or bring home more supplies for the things that she loves to do, more Lego, more, more cooking supplies, whatever. And for the next two or three months, only share things that you think will be met by her with a resounding yes. Celebrate your daughter as the wonderful person that she is right now. There's tons of time. This is her exploring who she is, um, being inside, who she is as, as a real individual. And what you're, you're trying to do is build trust with her, to show her through your actions that you know and love her as she is, right? As this person she is right now who doesn't want to go out and do those things. And you're going to show this through bringing her things that she truly is interested in, right? If you're suggesting things and she says, yes, she's going to feel like, oh, my mom understands me. She knows who I am. She's not trying to convince me to do all these other things. Um, and once you have that solid trust built, you can start to bring wider ranging suggestions in, but still from the perspective that you think she may be interested in them, not... Uh, you know, to soothe yourself, things that you hope that she's interested in, that you wish she was interested in. There's such a huge difference in the motivation behind those offerings. And in the meantime, you'll have learned to appreciate all the great learning that happens everywhere, in or out, in whatever environments uh, an individual person or your daughter enjoys. And that being bored needn't be something that needs to be fixed quickly, but it can be seen as an invitation to connect or a quiet space for them to explore. 
So I do have some other links about um, board and, and busyness and that kind of stuff. And there's tons of links about um, what learning looks like through unschooling. Uh, lots of stuff out there about supporting in more introverted personalities. So depending on what you find at the root of um, your request or your concern that she's not saying yes to outside activities, I think that will uh, really help you dive into that for yourself and alongside showing real support for her for uh, what she, what her choices are right now. What do you think, Anna? I mean, really so much of what you said, you know, we found interest in outside activities here really ebbed and flowed. There were big, long stretches where there was absolutely no interest. And then suddenly there would be a time that, Oh, let's try this. Um, I think the question tells us a lot when when she says, should I persuade? And I think persuade is that clue that maybe it isn't a good fit and it could be causing some disconnections. We shouldn't really be in a position of kind of persuading, which that next step is controlling and, you know, coercing. (laughs) So it's kind of that first on the slippery slope. Um, I agree with Pam, too, that, you know, after the trust is built, You can share information that you find, but without agenda. You know, I do that all the time as things come up. Um, You know, many things don't spark, but sometimes one does and we pursue it more. But I really have zero attachment to them choosing a particular class or activity. It may just be something that I saw that I know they had mentioned and I just let them know. And and so my non-attachment gives them the freedom to really look inside and say, oh, is that a spark or not without this kind of, oh, mom wants me to do this or, oh, this is being valued over something else. So I think if you can take that out of the equation, it really helps a person, a child or anyone refocus on what their feelings are and and to be guided internally, which is just so much more helpful. Um, As Pam mentioned, also, I think it it just really helps to realize that learning does not only happen in a classroom setting. And it sounds like she's telling you loud and clear that the classroom learning doesn't suit her style. And it sounds like she really likes to explore on her own terms. And so maybe she'd be interested in mentors or just in joining other people that are exploring the things that she loves in more of a free form manner. But, you know, honestly, if she's happy with how it's going, then I would just enjoy that flow. Just just sit back and really admire that because her inner knowing is a beautiful gift. You know, I love how she instinctively knows to follow her interest and doesn't want those outside influences messing with her process. You know, if we look at cooking as an example, she has this idea and she's wanting to mess and do. And, and I think you can find with classes that then they'll tell you this is the right way. This is the only way you have to do this way. And you miss that experimental process that leads us to the next great discovery. So I love that she gets that already. Um, and there may come a time when she changes her mind and wants some outside information from someone else. But her inner knowing about that at her age is so cool to me because she isn't relying on experts. And and that is the exact personality that changes the world because they are going to start from within and explore and do and discover something. And when we have kids just sitting in classrooms being told what how it's done, how to do it, this is how it goes that's all they learn so it kind of closes in that world and so you know she sounds like just a really fresh spark for the world so I'm excited to read about her um but anyway so the same thing with Pam but I was just I think she sounds awesome (laughs) I know I know it's awesome and because I remember too um when when the kids first came home and, you know, Joseph was uh, very interested in drawing and stuff. And so I would see little art classes out in, in mm-hmm. town and, and I would mention them to him and he'd be like, nope, nope. I don't want someone else telling me that what I'm doing is wrong. Right. Because he's just exploring and, and figuring out his way. So it's just that mind shift, I think, to to realize that that has so much more value um, their own personal exploration is how they're learning things. Right. And, uh, and it's, it is so much more valuable learning, I think, right. Because, Mm -hmm. because they own it and, and it makes connections deeply for them rather than just being uh, stuffed in. Yeah, that's very cool. Have fun with that. (laughs) I know. Enjoy that because that's beautiful to watch. Um, Okay, so I'm going to go ahead to question three from Rain um, in Rochester, New York. 
Hello, ladies. Thank you for your time and answers. My son, nine years old, has extreme anxiety disorder and anger issues. Sometimes he is physically abusive to friends and family and more frequently verbally abusive abusive and disrespectful. We have chosen gentle parenting slash radical unschooling. I have handled our issue in two ways. One, talking to him with no punishment. Two, me yelling and sending him to his room and sometimes taking things away. Nothing is working. I do not know what to do. Today he lost his last friend because of his name calling and his friend's mother called me and made me feel like the worst parent in the world with the worst child. I am so sad for my son and I do not know why he feels so negative so often. Sorry, that was long. Thanks for reading. That was not long. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It sounds like today was so stressful. And I know this is in the past, but that day sounds so stressful for you both. And it's certainly no fun when there's conflict between friends with our kids and then adding the other parents upset is just a lot to take on. So just, you know, I just wanted to give you some space and validation around that, that that sounds so difficult. Um, I think it can be hard for kids when sometimes there's a, such a dramatic difference in our reaction. So it's hard to make sense of that and hard to trust the kind of talking no punishment times when there are other times of yelling and taking away. And so not really knowing which time is coming. Um, I think it would help to maybe commit to always being his partner and to share that with him. Let him know that there may be times when you get frustrated and, but that you don't want to take that out on him and that you'll step back and regroup coming back to connecting with him to try to help. And I, I feel like if he can trust you as his partner, then you may get beyond some of these layers to figure out where the anxiety is coming from, what's happening, what, what need is being met by some of the behaviors that you're seeing. And I did just want to throw in here and we can put it in the show notes that um, a lot of people found support in the book, The Explosive Child. So it might be something you want to check out and see if anything resonates there that that fits your family. Um, I tend to look at behavior as a clue to an unmet need. So I like to peel back the layers. I don't focus on addressing the behavior because it's just the clue. Um, with this question or this situation, I feel like it would be helpful to have more specific examples so that we could help you reframe and look for clues to find that underlying need. But it's typically things like needing food, too much stimulation, not feeling heard, needing space, needing connection. Um, There could be something bigger going on within the family or outside of the family or in different environments. So sometimes those things are bubbling underneath. And so it helps to look for that you know, watching for patterns to see, is it a certain time? Is it places, individuals, certain individuals, activities, you know, those kind of things helps us put the pieces together to figure out what's going on. Understanding the environmental triggers can help you and your son work to recognize the stress before it becomes an outburst. When my oldest was young, we found that when she became overwhelmed, that we needed to, the, um, excuse me, we needed to t- take space alone where she would process things by herself, that that was really critical to her because she could become overstimulated easily. Together, we helped her figure out ways to recognize that she was becoming overwhelmed before she got to the stage of upset or lashing out. And so then she would be able to just say, you know what, I'm needing some space. And I could immediately help her find that if we were away from home or if at home she had a special routine that she would do. When we would go somewhere, in fact, I would talk to her and look at the space where we were for options where she could go and have time to herself. And I would check in with the host and say, is there a spot, a room, an area inside, outside that might work for her to have some time alone if she needs it? And it was also really important in those early years for me to be close by and ready to help. You know, I couldn't use that time as time to meet my social needs. You know, this was time that we were, the kids were playing and I would meet my social needs at other times. So sometimes it's helpful to see about that. Is it, you know, was I being as engaged as I needed to be? in that situation. Um, As she got older, she had the tools to recognize and address the anxiety and stress and needed me not, you know, I didn't need to be there. Right. And she was able to take a look and see what she needed and, and do that for herself. But, but it took some time. Um, Again, not knowing the specific makes it a little bit hard to give specific ideas, but hopefully there's something in here that might spark something for you to think about and some, maybe look for some patterns, you know, in the end, it's really like we talk about all the time. It's all about connections. 
you know, if you tend to that connection, the rest will fall into place. Um, And as an aside, I see that you're from Rochester, and I'm actually coming to Rochester in May to speak to the Rochester Area Homeschool Association, which is a group in your area that maybe you're a part of, but if not, definitely check out their website, and um, you might get some support from your local community there, and we can put that in the show notes also. But I'll just turn it over to Pam. Definitely, we'll put that in the show notes. (laughs) Yeah, send me that link. Um, and those were great ideas. I love so much about what you were talking about, digging into the clues and the patterns and starting to see what's happening. And um, your recommendation of the explosive child, I remember finding that helpful um, when we were first starting out as well, some of some of those ideas. And he's got some newer books out now too that are great. Yeah, so definitely. definitely that can help, Rain. Um, and yes, thanks so much for your question, Rain. Uh, and I am sorry that you guys are having a hard time. Um, I know that, um, you're going to be able to help though, you know, if you, uh, take the time to work through it, it's not an impossible situation. So I just wanted you to, uh, to, to realize that, that there, there are ways to move forward. Um, and I'm not sure from your question, uh, but it does seem that you guys have, you have recently chosen gentle parenting and radical unschooling. Um, because from the two ways you're describing that you're handling your son's challenges right now, they're more um, conventional parenting techniques. So there are a couple of podcast episodes that I would like to recommend to you. There's the one that Anna and I did um, talking about parenting that supports unschooling way back in episode number seven. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of weeks ago, episode number 63 was actually titled Gentle Parenting with Shannon Lauks. And then in episode 61, I spoke with Emma Marie Ford about attachment parenting, and we talk about some of the ways that unschooling parents work to develop secure attachments with their children and how those actively support unschooling. So I think that what can help right now is just to drop all those expectations around his behavior and cocoon for a while. Actively try not to put him in any situations with others where he might feel anxious and get angry. For now, you want to help him feel as safe as possible and as often as possible to feel safe and loved as himself. Do the things that he loves to do as much as possible. You want to help him find his own equilibrium with himself first. And you wrote that, I don't know why he feels so negative so often, What you want to do now is figure that out. That's what Anna was talking about, digging into the clues, looking for patterns to get to know him so well that he becomes comfortable talking to you about it. Comfortable because he's not feeling judged by you and knows in his heart that you want to help him because I'm sure these situations and his reactions don't feel good to him either, right? Mm -hmm. Or if he's not able to express his underlying needs uh, in words, that's okay too. Um, you're going to get to know him so well that you're able to discern his needs and feelings uh, through his actions and reactions. Um, it really does take time to understand a person to that depth, but that's what's going to help you develop a beautiful and trusting, connected relationship with him. And then from that foundation, you can begin to help him explore ways to engage more comfortably with other people. I know we found um, that briefing and setting up environments when we went to go visit places, you know, looking for uh, a quiet spot uh, and having had come up with a plan before we went, you know, that that was something that might help and then making sure that we all knew where that place was going to be. Um, and helping pointing out clues along the way if they didn't notice or if they came up responding quickly, Um, realizing that, like Anna mentioned, it's not a social time for me on this visit. I'm my main role is to support and help them because you're helping them figure out how um, they can handle these these moments. So one thing Emma and I talked about in the attachment parenting episode is that many of us coming to unschooling haven't learned how to develop secure attachments with other people. And we're just stuck in the relationship patterns that we know that we grew up with, like the ones that you're describing uh, that you've used with your son up to this point. But it really is possible to learn and change our own patterns and in turn develop secure attachments with our children. And that often turns out to be such a large part of our de-schooling process. I know it was for me. 
So have a listen to that episode and see if it resonates with you. I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes as well. And best of luck to you and your son. I think I think it's great that you're asking the question and that you're looking for other ways because what's working now isn't. And check out that Rochester group too. It can it can also be helpful to, you know, meet up with people face to face. Okay, question number four. This one's from Sarah in Israel. Uh, She writes, hi there. I wanted to ask a question about video games and other so-called, quote, screen time. Whilst per se, I have no objection with screens. Obviously, they are a big part of my life. I am looking at one as I write this. I do worry about my children being exposed to violent and sexually explicit things that either don't need to be part of their life or that they might not need to know about until later when they have tools to process it. Do you slash other unschooling parents monitor what is on the inside of the screens? How do you do this without interfering with children's freedoms and interests? The reason this is so pressing has more to do with my own experience than with current catastrophizing about screens. I have a photographic memory and vivid imagination. I am still haunted by gruesome, violent, and sexually violent things I saw in movies and TV I was exposed to as a child. I can recall the scenes in intense detail, and it is very unpleasant for me. Although it is a low-scale irritation at this stage and not the abject terror I used to feel as a child, I still wish my parents had done more to keep these kinds of things away from me. We don't have a TV in our house, our choice, we don't like it, but we do use our laptops a lot for all kinds of things, including watching some shows. As my son gets older, I'd really be interested in hearing about how people do or don't guide their children's usage of technologies. Is there a boundary and what is it? Thanks a lot. Thank you very much for your question, Sarah. And what I wanted to dive into was some of the ways that you've described the situation to talk a bit bigger picture about the process of de-schooling. So your question of whether other unschooling parents monitor their children's activities applies to your technology-focused question, but also to so many other situations. The use of the word monitor is interesting and suggesting the parent's role as watching over our children rather than being engaged with them. And that can be such a hard distinction to understand, but it's a really valuable paradigm shift on the road to unschooling. So that's what I would like to dive into for a bit. So when we think of our parenting as monitoring, we're taking in what our children are doing and judging it okay or not okay and reacting accordingly. Even if As an unschooling parent, we see the value and are okay with a lot more things. Judging things okay is still judging things from our perspective. It's still coming at things from a control point of view, which of course means we want to know what to do when we judge something not okay, which is what's behind your question. So by asking if there's a boundary, you're contemplating where that line would be between okay and not okay, For us unschooling parents, that's what you're asking. But with unschooling, and certainly with radical unschooling, what we're doing is helping our children discover where that line is for them. And it's in releasing our hold on our line where fear often pops up, right? The fear that children free from their parents' boundaries will want to do crazy things or will be exposed to wild things. Yet what experienced unschooling parents are sharing is that that really isn't true, When we're engaged with our children, we're a level deeper than monitoring. So we're beyond the judgment of them and we're side by side with them, chatting with them, bouncing around ideas, making observations, again, without that judgment piece, as they make choices and develop their own sense of awareness. We know what makes us uncomfortable and we're helping them figure out what makes them uncomfortable. So that's why in unschooling circles, we so often talk about looking at things from our child's perspective, whether it's what they're seeing on their laptops, on their phones, or as they walk around the neighborhood. It's all related, right? We meet them where they are so we can help them develop a deep level of self-awareness and explore tools to help them more comfortably navigate the world. 
So see the parallels with the first question that we were talking about today? If the child is uncomfortable with something, whether it's unexpectedly coming across an upsetting visual or finding themselves slipping into the flow of an activity for longer than they're comfortable with, we help them find ways to arrange their environment so that it better meets their needs and goals. Like I remember um, when Joseph started playing video games more um, because he wasn't going to school anymore. He specifically didn't like blood in his video games, right? He didn't like that aspect when he was uh, nine going on 10. So, you know, that was something that we watched out for. Um, there was information on the game box. We could look up the game specifically. You know, that was just something at, at that point in time that he didn't like, but it wasn't something that I put on top of him, but it was something that we worked together um, to meet that need of his. So we don't presuppose their challenges and then artificially restrict their environment beforehand because when we do that, we're getting the way of their learning about both themselves and about the world, right? If they don't experience it and see what's going on, um, they can't understand that piece of themselves, right? So it's so much learning um, about how they, how they uh, want to set up their environment so that they can meet what they want to do in their days. You know, and you mentioned your parents, um, you know, in your situation, you knew this was something that bothered you, but they weren't helping you arrange your environment so that you didn't continue to encounter it. So that's kind of a different aspect, a different way of parenting. Um, so instead of you drawing the, the line for, for your son, wherever, um, you think that might be help him find um, where the line is for himself and help him set up his environment the way it's going to work for him. What do you think, Anna? Yeah, I mean, I I feel the same and have some. We have some of our own experiences with that, but I find that the relationships that we have with our children as unschooling families is really what helps in these scenarios because we are close and we're spending time together. You know, I just had a really good sense of what they were comfortable with and might be too much and knew when I might, Oh, maybe let me tell them about this to see if they know or don't know. So we would just talk mm -hmm. about it. And there were yeah. times when they wanted me to read ahead or watch ahead and let them know what was coming. And sometimes they would choose to close their eyes or leave a room. Like there was no, you know, we just found different ways to work. But I really found that they didn't seek things out that were outside of their comfort zone. They seemed to, you know, they just really weren't being exposed to those type of things, even though they had the ability to look up and do whatever they wanted to do. Um, my oldest has HSAM, which is a type of autobiographical memory. And this incredible memory <laughs> makes it really challenging when something traumatic happens because she will remember in intense details years and years later. And knowing this about her helped us be extra cautious and I'm sure it wasn't enough at times, just like this, um, Sarah found, but because you can remember everything and the emotion of it with such detail, it can be really tricky. And I guess I'm just sharing that to say, I appreciate how hard it must have been for you and how scary. And I can certainly understand your concerns as that's kind of a trigger, you know, that's being brought up. But I think it might be helpful for your children to hear your story and to understand that your hope is to help them explore in a way that's safe and comfortable to them, but also, you know, and, and it will help them avoid things that might be unsettling. And hearing about your experience may help them articulate their boundaries and they'll know that you're a partner and not attempting to control. I, I think if you just start, you know, you're coming in and watching and controlling and the monitoring that Pam's talking about, you run the risk of this becoming a divisive issue. You know, why is she trying to control this? And it kind of short circuiting their ability to learn for themselves as Pam was talking about. But I think if you can share where you're coming from, they can see you as a partner and know that there's, you know, you're not going to impose your will on them, but that you just want to have that conversation and talk about it. And then I think you'll find that it flows a, a lot easier than maybe it did in your childhood because of that extra connection and the time that we have when we're unschooling. So that's all. <laughs> I, yeah. I really, really love that point about sharing, um, sharing her story. She can share it, you know, um, with her children because that that's part of the partnership, right? right? It's not a one, not one way communication. I mean, my kids know um, what I don't like, to see and they'll tell yes. me to close my eyes you know exactly. 
that that's the definition of partnership. We're living together. We're all helping each other feel comfortable, right? <laughs> it's so true. And that comes up a lot here because there's certain types of even comedy I don't like because I feel like it's mean spirited, but other people mm-hmm. in the family are comfortable with that, but they'll be like, oh, you're not going to like that one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's like and, my husband knows I'll just watch this show myself because I know you don't like that. Co- it's right. a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> right. But those are the kind of conversations we have. And again, I don't mind that they're watching it. I'm not passing judgment on that, but I just talk about what I'm comfortable with. But then that gives them the freedom and, and to say what they're comfortable with. So it just has that, that environment, you know, of openness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Okay, so question five, this is our last question, I believe, for this week, comes from um, Jana in Cape Town, South Africa. So I, I love this international flair we always have going on. I know, I know. <laughs> Fun. Um, hi there, I am loving unschooling my child, 5.8, and it's my, I'm, and he's thriving. We've been through the binge phase following our relaxation of TV restrictions. My son still watches hours of TV and I try to leave him to it. However, I'm concerned about the psychological effects on his developing brain. Medical professionals. Oh, sorry. Physiological. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Medical professionals suggest less is more for young ones. We do try to talk to him about this, but he seldom responds from a kind of self-care basis. How do you deal with parental concerns about health without enforcing cutoff times? Many thanks. Um, you know, with any kind of health concern, I will share information, but I also really look at my child because I know my child more than any expert who has never met them. And as we talked about in one of the earlier questions, you know, experts and research and science, there's a lot of bias there. And you're going to find studies that show one thing and studies that show another thing. And so instead of getting wrapped up in that, I really just encourage people to kind of get back in the moment, get back in your family, watch your child, see how your child's responding to it, see what's happening in the environment, and and really trust that as opposed to kind of handing over that power to people that have never met you or don't know anything about your situation. Um, as for TV with very young children, I really found that my kids wanted to be with me. So if I was there to engage in a game or an adventure or walk outside, you know, that's really what they chose over TV. So I used it kind of as a little mindness and mindfulness bell. If I noticed a lot of TV and some disconnection that I would look at me and what was going on and was I present, was I being there? Like I wanted to be there and, you know, just kind of look at my role in that piece. And sometimes it was, Hmm, you know, I have been distracted or I have these other things going on, or sometimes it's no, we're just really enjoying this time of TV watching and decompressing because maybe some other things have been going on. So again, just look at it more specifically to your situation, to your family, to your child versus a general rule that rarely applies when you look at it, you know, in in the filter of everyone. Okay. That's all I've got, Pam. No, that's uh that's great. That's uh, a great way to start digging into it. And what I'm going to do, because it seems to be what I'm doing this month, <laughs> let's look again at how you're um, describing the situation, Jana. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you talk about your son watching hours of TV and you leaving him to it. And when you do say something, you talk to him and he doesn't respond in a way that you would describe as self-care. So he's not meeting your expectations around the situation. So when I pull those bits out like that, what do you hear? Can you see how disconnecting those snapshots seem? They don't describe an engaged partnership. You know, we've been talking about partnerships so much this episode. Even the term self-care seems to imply hands-off, right? To me, the concept of self-care is really about developing self-awareness and making choices accordingly. And developing that level of self-awareness takes time and experience. And I really do love that there's been quite the theme uh, through most of the questions this month. And Mm -hmm. the way that through the way through our fears, all these different um, ways that we're putting our fears on these situations is through connecting with our children. You know, all those lovely ideas Anna had. The image that keeps going through my mind, uh, you know, as I was making notes to these questions um, was of a parent going from standing up beside their child and looking down at them to crouching down to their level and looking them in the eye. It's like going from seeing the situation from our perspective 
to being open to discovering what things look like from our child's perspective. And then from there, helping them take the next step forward that they would like to take. So it's not about talking to him, but talking with him. Not having your vision of self-care be the measure, but helping him explore how he feels as he's watching. Helping him check in with himself to see what's up. You might do that by bringing a drink or a snack and staying with him for a while. Because that you're giving him the opportunity to mention things that he's noticing or thinking. And for you to share anything that you notice without judgment or expectation. It's all information for him to learn more about himself. And it's information for you to learn so much more about him. So, you know, it's not about uh, leaving him to watch his hours of TV. There's just so much more um, that can be had in the experience. The more you know about him, the more you can connect and engage with him in meaningful ways. And the more you can enrich his days with things that he's likely to enjoy, you know, to know him at that level of detail, even if it's another show that you think he'll love. You know, we were talking earlier about um, the child who doesn't want to go out but wants to stay in. Support and show um, that you trust the choices that they're making, that you support them in the choices that they're making. Because, you know, whether it's right or, or wrong, it's all about what it is for them. And that's what they're exploring. You know, uh, Shannon, a couple of weeks ago on her gentle parenting episode, um, shared a wonderful example of moving their joy into the kitchen to whip up a drink concoction that was mentioned in a favorite show. You know, she knew she was watching with the show or, or knew about this and could make that connection and joy and bring that um, to bigger focus in their life. It's not like you're trying to... Um, cut off, imagine, you know, TV as something separate, and then there's the rest of their life, their real life, you know, it's using um, their uh, love, the things they enjoy about it, to jump as a jumping off spot to bring new things into their world. So even saying that your son watches hours of TV is a disconnected way of talking about what's happening. It's not the TV that they're watching, right? It's the shows on the TV that they're watching. If the TV was off, I don't think they'd be watching it for very long. <laughs> I know that may seem rather facetious, but it really helps us to make that distinction. Right. It's not so likely, right, that the TV itself is the interest. So dig deeper and find out what it is. What kinds of shows is he watching? What is he enjoying about them? Share his joy and get to know him better. And what being engaged with our children does is allow us to see what's really happening, to see our children as whole beings, you know, this is them in this moment, to see the learning and the connections that are happening in that moment, because they really are. I know, um, as Anna said, you can find studies to say just about anything. Medical professionals suggest less is more in the TV department. Educational professionals say curriculum is necessary for learning. These are conventional ideas that we can choose to question. So dive into it with an open mind and enthusiasm and see if they really are true in your family, right? That's that whole piece Anna was talking about. Observe and see what's up for real. And then trust your own experiences over the studies done on groups of children whose lives do not at all resemble our children's free unschooling lives. You know, they're so different. Um, the things that they do with technology, the way they approach TV watching, um, you know, it's not always about decompressing, right? It's They so actively engage with what they're doing in the moment um, that it's just a beautiful thing to watch, but we need to get in and really understand it. It's just not, it's not just about TV or, or not TV or technology screens and not screens. That is such a superficial level that it's not going to help us understand our child and expand their world um, in the ways that will have meaning for them in the moment, right? Yeah, we saw that a lot where the TV was really a jumping off point. And sometimes it was to other shows about the same type of topic. And sometimes it was to books that were either, you know, 
could be fiction or nonfiction. And again, or it was making something in the kitchen or trying the scavenger hunt outside or doing the things that whatever, you know, animals were a big theme for us. So we, you know, they like enjoyed animal shows and then we found other animals and it wasn't even um, this act of like, okay, now I'm going to educate them about other animals. It was just, we just filled our environment with things that we loved and those shows were a part of that. And so it is just kind of understanding and being a part of it instead of distancing. Oh, he's watching the TV. We'll leave him to it. You know, that there's definitely a different feel to that. So yeah, I love that. Yeah. I really, it, it always seems to me something that, that a child is keenly interested in really is, can be a whole window to the world, mm-hmm. right? Uh, not just, you know, people worry, oh, there's, they, they watch hours and hours of TV or they play hours and hours of games or they read right. for hours and hours and hours, you know, whatever it is that they are really deeply engaged with, they worry that it's so limiting. But in truth, when you get in there with them, so often you see so many different mm-hmm. ways. It, it really is a window to everything. It's just their preferred window, the one that has so many connections for them because it all has meaning because it's all related to what they're passionate about in the moment, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's so beautiful. And that is the last question this month. Thank you so much, Anna, for answering questions with me. Yay. Yes, it was great fun. I missed Anne. I know you did too. I know she missed being here. She she loves cardinals, and there was a cardinal outside my window the whole time. So I was like, oh, Anne is here with us. <laughs> All right. That's beautiful. Because <laughs> I know we kept rescheduling because I know how much she wanted to be here. I but, know, you know she really wanted to. So, But yeah, but we'll be back again next month. Definitely. And just a reminder for everyone, there will be links in the show notes for everything that we've mentioned. And as always, if you'd like to submit a question for the Q&A show, just go to livingjoyfully.ca forward slash podcast and click on the link. Have a great day, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes at livingjoyfully.ca forward slash podcast. While you're there, be sure to check out the second book in my Living Joyfully with Unschooling series, Free to Live, Create a Thriving Unschooling Home. In it, I dive into the four characteristics that I found helped unschooling flourish in our home. Curiosity, patience, strong relationships, and trust. One reviewer wrote, Really enjoyed this short and sweet book. It has marvelous one-liners, and though I'm not an underliner, I found myself underlining on every page. Another said, I believe it would benefit any homeschooler or parent to read this book as it re-emphasizes the importance of the relationship between a parent and a child in the learning process. I plan to reread this book. It is rich and full of gems. Give yourself some time to absorb it before rushing into unschooling. Until next time, have fun living and learning with your family.